All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from uh, New York City. It's the 28th day of July, 2020. I do like to remind you I'm the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com. ChenPicks.com is a recommendation of mine. Chen has uh, done extremely well uh, advising his subscribers and making money for his family as well. He uh, is in the biotech space as well as the energy and uh, and uh, mining space as well. Those are areas that Chen has had has developed quite a specialty in. Uh, so you might want to consider signing to his letter. Go to ChenPicks.com. Um, also, I'd like to encourage you to send along your questions. Um, any comments or questions, whatever you might feel about this show, send them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And as far as our sponsors go, we're very grateful to them because without them, there would be no show. Our sponsors this week are Great Bear Resources, Benchmark Metals, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp. And I want to welcome NV Gold this week as a new sponsor to the show. NV Gold has a number of properties in Nevada, but under the leadership of Peter Ball, who will be with me in the second segment of today's show, he will talk about an exciting new project that they picked up known as the Exodus Gold Project in British Columbia. It is certainly worth noting as well that uh, Dr. Quentin Henning is a director and advisor to NV Gold, and so it's uh, always a, a Henning project is always something that yours truly likes to take a look at, given my confidence in Dr. Henning. And speaking of him, I am really pleased to tell you that uh, Lion One Metals will be joining this show as a sponsor starting next week. Now, that company appears to be in the early stages of a massive alkaline gold discovery uh, in Fiji. Uh, As Dr. Quentin Henning has discussed on this show in the past, Last week, Lion One announced a 12.7-meter intersection grading 46.14 grams of gold in a very deep hole in what is considered to be or believed likely to be a feeder zone. Now, I spoke to Dr. Henning last week about this intercept, and he indicated that what they are seeing at this point is confirming his hypothesis that they do have the possibility of a major alkaline deposit, which are typically very large high-grade systems uh, and there are several of them in this part of the world. The Tuvatu project uh, in the Fiji Islands, um, and there are others around. These are typically 10 plus million ounce deposits. Uh, there are no junior companies with anything like this other than Lion One, at least as far as I know. 
mostly it's major mining companies that pick up on these projects. And indeed, at some point in time, I'm sure that's going to be the case with Lion 1 too. Although, it should be noted that Lion 1 does have, uh, actually already does have, uh, permits in place to go ahead and mine. They were going to mine on a smaller scale. Uh, very high grade, very high margin project, especially even at lower, much lower gold prices. Uh, but then along comes Dr. Quentin Henning and has this idea that they could be something much, much bigger. And it seems as though that's what's starting to develop. So Lion 1 moved very nicely on that news last week of that 12.7 meter intersection grading over 46 grams per ton. Well, I've been writing my newsletter since 1981, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And a couple of days after the assassination of Anwar Sadat was when I wrote my first letter in, uh, back in October 15, 1981. The focus has always been on the need for honest money in the form of gold or silver if a nation is to remain not only prosperous and secure, but also enjoy liberty and justice for its citizens. Before Nixon removed gold from the dollar in 1971, America had a very strong middle class and a very egalitarian income distribution. But now we are on the precipice of losing the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency and seeing the greenback enter the dustbin of history. At least that's a theory that, uh, a belief that Alistair McLeod has, and he will be with me in the second half of today's show uh, to discuss that and other related issues. And I hope and pray that Alistair is not right about that, because I think if we lose the dollar as the world's reserve currency, there will be upheaval and disruption around the world, not only in America, but around the world, as major changes are, uh, would be in store if that's the case. But given the horrific financial condition America and the Western world in general finds itself, I can honestly say that I have never been more bullish uh, with respect to gold and silver, and that dates all the way back to 1981. I do remember right before that in the 1970s, the late 1970s, and that's how I got interested in uh, the gold mining sector. Uh, I saw the, the rise in gold prices, dramatic rise in inflation, uh, and that was a time uh, in which gold shares did extremely well. I think this move right now is going to be much bigger uh, than what I witnessed in the late 70s. Uh, but I believe that we are now already starting to see a massive transfer of wealth away from fiat money into gold and silver, certainly small compared to the total number of currency units that are floating around in the world's reserve. Uh, in the world, but as James Turk suggested yesterday, that what we are seeing now with the new high in gold is just the front end of a tsunami of rising gold and silver prices. It's not that gold and silver have increased in value, not at all, simply that our financial system has been destroyed by Keynesian economic theory that has denied price discovery of capital, hence the destruction of capital, which is really the only system that has been successful in lifting the incomes and the living standards of people around the world uh, throughout human history. So I'm just suggesting that had Nixon not removed gold from the international monetary system, we would not be having the horrific financial instability that now threatens uh, to throw the world into an enormous economic coma. But when crises occur, as I mentioned, there, there are opportunities and a growing number of people are seeking ways to invest in gold which is why I'm working hard now to put together a course on that very topic. Thanks to our son, Scott, who has suggested there are a lot of people out there uh, in his travels who are seeking information on this topic. They're looking for ways to make money and, 
seeing the handwriting on the wall for the equity markets and the financial markets in general. Well, I hope to be offering this course in the very near future. I'm working hard on it right now. It will be an online fee-based pre-recorded video course that will cover such subjects as why the, uh, why the table has been set for this being the greatest bull market in my lifetime, uh, a post-COVID-19 world and a fourth turning for America and why that is bullish for gold and silver and tangibles in general, different ways to own and invest gold and silver, including mining shares, a basic discussion of the economics and pr- of precious metals mining pr- uh, projects, the basics of investing in junior exploration stocks. And finally, I will have an interview with Dr. Quentin Henning uh, about what he looks for in deciding whether or not to get involved in an exploration program. Now, Dr. Henning is involved as a key advisor to many of the companies, several of them that are sponsors of this show. Uh, I have learned to uh, really appreciate Dr. Henning's expertise and his willingness and ability to look outside the box, in fact, Uh, and to think differently from many of his colleagues in the exploration business. So I'm working hard to complete this course, which will be uh, a recorded video, as I say, and with PowerPoint slides. Uh, Because of the rapidity of this move in the precious metals, I am trying to move this along as fast as I'm able, and I hope to be able to uh, see the finish line or at least be able to project that uh, by next week's show. Again, if this course sounds as if it would be of interest to you, Please register your interest by sending a note along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions number four uh, at G, uh, questions for Taylor uh, at gmail.com. Now I've titled today's show "Inflation This Time Is Different." Alistair McLeod returns and Peter Ball visits for the first time. Michael Oliver is not with us today as he is moving to a location in Colorado where a very strong Second Amendment is honored. However, Michael is expected to be uh, returning to us next week. Deflationist Ms. Shedlock, who has been on the show uh, a few years ago, recently reiterated reasons why he expects falling prices during what is emerging as the most serious economic decline, arguably since the 1930s. Deflationary forces in a depression are well established, but the case for rising prices uh, hinges on dollar vulnerability as a global currency. Now the Fed needs to fund massive U.S. deficits from money created out of thin air. But unlike the 1930s, when the U.S. had uh, its currency backed by gold, um, this time there is nothing backing the U.S. dollar. There's nothing to hold it down uh, at this point in time, nothing to keep endless amounts of infinite amounts of money from being created. Uh, And the gold backing now that we have is a tiny fraction uh, the gold backing, the gold that the Treasury owns, is a tiny fraction relative to the unit of currency that we had in the 1930s. Well, Alistair believes that the dollar's days are numbered, not only as the world's reserve currency, but even as a useful domestic currency. Alistair will make the case for why Americans may be in for a rude awakening of a massive, massively higher cost of living and the need, like never before, to own gold and silver for wealth preservation. We do have to go to break now, but uh, don't go away because Peter Ball will be with me to introduce NV Gold. It's a very exciting story, a very exciting project, early days, but nonetheless very promising in British Columbia. And Peter will be with us to introduce that story to you right after the break, so don't go away.
Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. NV Gold Core trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit nvgoldcore.com to learn more on this exciting story. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times, Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me for the first time, Peter Ball. Peter has uh, over 30 years of experience as a mining professional at all levels of leadership. Throughout his career, he has held various senior management roles with international precious mining uh, metals mining companies in corporate finance and securities trading, mine engineering, business development, corporate communications, public relations, and marketing functions throughout the, uh, the North and South America, Asia, and European continents. Peter uh, began his career in the late 1980s working as a mining engineer, a technical representative, and in various management and senior executive roles for numerous companies, including Red Star Gold, Columbus Gold, Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting, Echo Bay Mines, RBC Dominion Securities, Eldorado Gold Corp. And uh, Peter is a graduate of uh, Haleybury School of Mines, a Georgian. Uh, Business College, UBS Canadian Securities course, uh, is a member of the CIMM and currently director of uh, Searchlight Resources and the Bullion Gold Resources Corp. So as you can see, Peter has a, a really diversified professional background that I think uh, makes him well-suited to, uh, to head up uh, this company, and I'm really pleased to see that he has joined this company, NV Gold is one that I've had on my list before Peter joined, and now uh, Peter, along with improving market conditions, is certainly breathing life into this story and into this stock, and so I'm really uh, pleased to have him. Just before I say hello to Peter, I should tell you that it trades in Toronto under the symbol NVX. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have under NVGLF, uh, 46.4 million shares. Outstanding is the number I have. Trading in the $0.38 cents to $0.41 cent range today. Uh, it gives it a market cap of a little under 20, well, probably 18 million, 19 million dollars, something in that range. So it's a very, very small market cap. 
but, but Peter has some big ideas and some uh, uh, some really hopeful things that he's going to tell you about. So thanks for joining me today, Peter. Thanks, Jay. Always, always a pleasure to catch up with you. It is always a pleasure, uh, for sure, especially when times are, are going well uh, in our sector as they are now. You know, you sent me some notes today about what you would like to talk about, and uh, and much of what you had to say was much less specific than with a lot of companies that we talk to here. Uh, you have really sort of identified, you've identified one property that, that I know you're anxious to get to look get looking at uh, seriously because you think it holds a lot of promise. And I want to ask you about that, but I'd like to ask you maybe to lay the groundwork with respect to your philosophy, your business philosophy, because I think not only with respect to NB Gold, but I think our listeners as, in general might benefit from your ideas. So, you know, Peter, when I first started following NV Gold, uh, it was really, I considered it to be more of a project generator model, which is certainly not something that is doing, you know, I think it's fallen out of favor to a great extent over the last number of years, maybe because we're in a bull market now. But can you explain why you don't, it's not really a business model that you that you really uh, care very much for? Yeah, thanks, Jay. It's a great, great question. At Envy Gold, um, myself, along with the chairman and, and uh, majority of our management team, we've taken um, a strong ownership um, of being big shareholders of Envy Gold. Um, me and the chairman, the chairman and I are, are the top four shareholders of Envy Gold. And what we believe in is we like uh, to uh, provide an opportunity to reward our shareholders um, with a big win. We're a junior exploration company. And we have a number of projects where we usually take uh, one to two or three per year to drive value through the discovery. Um, and the key thing about NV Gold is what we've done is put together what we believe is probably some of the smartest minds in the industry. Um, one of our key leading technical directors is uh, a gentleman named Dr. Quinton Henney. Um, he's the chairman of Novo Resources. I think it's uh, market cap about three quarters of a billion out of Australia. He's also the leading technical director of a company called Irving Resources um, and uh, another company called Lion One Metals. And he's one of the founders of this company. And with his assistance, and also another gentleman, Dr. Odin Christensen, who used to be the chief geologist globally for Newmont, which at the time... And, and I believe still is one of the largest gold companies in the world. And Odie has seen them all. So with the great minds and, and a very focused management team and, and ensuring that we stick every dollar into the ground, we provide what we believe is a different philosophy than a prospector generator of finding a project, giving it away, and waiting for somebody else to get onto the drill bit. We um, use our dollars. We watch them very closely and we stick them in the ground, focused on the discovery, which, as you just touched on, an interesting project we're into BC, but also some interesting projects in um, the state of Nevada. Yeah. You mentioned Dr. Henning. Of course, he's well-known to this uh, to our listeners. Uh, three of those companies that you named, at least three of them, are he's advisors to, and you would be the fourth one among our sponsors. Uh, Dr. Henning is, is highly revered by our listeners and uh, certainly one of the reasons that I wanted to take a closer look at your story again and, and get behind it more aggressively. Uh, one of the things Dr. Henning is always big on is scale, Peter. You said you want to find something big for your for your shareholders. Uh, Dr. Henning's philosophy has always been go big or go home. Um, is that 
is that a, a rule of thumb that you're employing? And is, in other words, if you, if you have a small mining project, it costs about as much. I mean, it costs a lot to develop it, it the time it takes and everything else. Uh, but if you have something that's really, truly big, and those companies you just mentioned are all fall in that category, looking for really big projects, is that something that you look really seriously at in terms of scale? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the team we have, our goal, we're always looking for elephants. And, you know, in this industry, with gold uh, topping close to 2000 in the last 24 hours per ounce, or even 25 or $2,600 per ounce in Canada, we're looking for a project that has scalability, that has potentially a district-wide scale opportunity, that with a few holes, the market will quickly realize that we're onto something that will create... Um, a large amount or a lot of value for the company. And also the key thing that we try to leverage that against is the share structure of what currently, for example, NV Gold. NV Gold is is a company with uh, only around 55 million shares out. Um, And anything by the drill bit in the projects that we're looking at this year, which we have actually a very aggressive, uh, aggressive year with potentially three drill programs all commencing this fall, we're looking for the elephants, and like again, like the project we just found, uh, which I <laughs> say accidentally at TDAC, the largest mining conference in Canada. Um, this BC project is, is, is really interesting, at, 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 and, and uh, we're very lucky to be able to have it added to our portfolio. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's talk about that. It's known as the Exodus Gold Project, I believe. It's in British Columbia. Uh, and you have an option to acquire 85% of that project. Uh, what what do you see there that makes you uh, so excited about it? And and maybe just talk a little bit about how you accidentally found it or got involved with it. Uh, you know, I, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd, I'd like to touch on how I found it. I was actually at PDAC, and PDAC is, again, if, if none of your listeners or some of your listeners don't understand what PDAC is about, it is the largest gold exploration mining conference in the world held in Toronto once a year in March. And we are scouring the floors looking for anybody that potentially has the next big thing. Um, accidentally, I was um, standing in a spot that I shouldn't have been standing in, and a guy walked up that looks like a geologist, and you can usually tell some geologists what they look like because they just don't have the suit that matches the tie. And I said, <laughs> what do you got? And he said, you know what? I've got a gold project, but I'm looking for so-and-so. And when I heard the so-and-so name, which is a much bigger name than myself, I had to ask what he had. Um, at a 10,000-foot level, being an engineer myself, it looked like it had enough meat that I needed to share it with my team. Um, I did share it, and immediately, um, I've, you know, I received comments from my team saying, this is something that we must absolutely secure. Four months to the day later, from March until July, on July 6th, we announced the acquisition of this project with an earn-in to option to earn 85% and another interesting thing, before I just touch on the project, the key thing about in our industry, in the small world we live in, the mining industry, is gathering in and building relationships to be mm-hmm. able not only to advance your story, but to work closely and advance um, projects for your shareholders. So mm-hmm. what we've done with the Exodus project is we have actually engaged the one of the property vendors as our senior project manager so we do not lose the intelligence that that individual is a very smart man um, has put together over three years so quickly under the project 
this project is in British Columbia, one of the uh, you know, politically uh, safe jurisdictions in Canada. And the very interesting thing, it's uh, immediately off a highway. You can see power lines from it. And it's not one of these projects that I categorize as in the Golden Triangle. We can access the project year-round as a logging road that has been uh, developed right throughout the project. It is a very large project, so scalability, um, again, of about 12,000 or 11,000 hectares or 115, um, 115 square kilometers. You can drive to town for McDonald's if you wanted to have your lunch, and our entire exploration camp was comprised of renting a house or an Airbnb. So we've cutting costs, accessible all year, and what the team has put together over three years is what we're uncovering here is an extensive, uh, believed to be stock work of mineralized veins that were always covered by some dirt or some overburden, one to three meters um, in this particular area. Brand new area, brand new discovery, big land position, right between two historically drilled porphyry, so we're in the right area, up to 23 grams of gold. And, uh, and what we call in, in correlation of pathfinders, we always look for gold with pathfinders correlated to arsenic and antimony. So a bunch of mm-hmm. geological stuff that says this has got the meat for a large system. So we just acquired it. We've already flown the property wide geophysics. We already have the, the staff on site. It's a big property, and, and it should be really exciting for our shareholders going forward. Any idea when you might, uh, when you might turn the drills? Is that to happen That's this year? question again, Chance. Absolutely. So currently we believe it's drill ready, but this is a project again that we've indicated can be drilled year round. So we're actually pushing forward with two months of what we're calling ground truthing reconnaissance across the property. At that point, we're going to formalize and kind of vector in and have more information because we hate wasting money to exactly where we're going to stick the drill rig. Our goal right now is to uh, start our drill program in October. If it works out, the good thing for the shareholders we're not going to stop. We're not in the Golden Triangle. We don't have 20 feet of snow. It's right next to the highway. You can rent a house and drive in at any time of the year. So yeah, October is what we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. And it can drill through the winter then, if I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. If you hit what you in want. Canada, you we're, uh, we're used to that and uh, absolutely not a problem at all. But again, formalize the drill program, put it together, stick some holes in, and uh, you know, make the dollars count on the first program because right now... I, I've been getting a lot of, it, of new calls and interest on what we believe is one of the most new interesting discoveries in British Columbia, and uh, we're lucky to have it. Well, oh, we'll certainly be watching with great interest. And you mentioned you have three projects that you may be drilling. What are the other two? Yeah, so the, another one, the other two projects are one, last year, again, I like to watch the dollar, so I asked Clinton and Odie and John, which is the largest shareholder of our company, our chairman, who's also an economic geologist from Colorado School of Mines, um, to examine a project that uh, Clinton Henney brought us last year, and it's called Slumber. It's a project that we tested um, briefly at the end of last year, blindly, and we hit some really interesting technical data in the holes. They weren't high grade, but we believe we're on top of some potential, again, I, I emphasize potential gold system. So we're going to be completing a what we call a CSAMT geophysical survey. Really just helps you to pinpoint where the drill, drill rig should be pointing their, uh, the drill bit. We'll be doing that here in a couple of weeks. And then we'll be heading into the drill program based on the results in probably September. That's the first one. So we started last year, did a work, 
test it, analyze it, model it, come back, and now we'll have a better opportunity so we don't waste money of our shareholders' dollars. Second, and where is that, Peter? Where is that project, located? Where is the slumber project North, located? Yeah, up in Winnemonica. 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 Winnemonica area. Yeah, yeah, Winnemonica in northwestern um, Nevada. Nevada. It's right directly west of a project called Sleeper, which is one of the highest grade oh, yes. uh, gold projects ever discovered. Absolutely. Know it well. Mm-hmm. All right, and, and the, the other one? one? Yeah, the other one real quick here is called Sandy. Sandy is an interesting project because we went into our database, which is a very large database, and we found a project that was not staked, had some very interesting drill holes in it, and our total cost to acquire the project was $2,000. No NSR, 100% control. And the very next day, a very reputable and solid exploration company, um, Eclipse Gold Mining, um, led by Mike Allen, really good guys. They actually staked the day after us the entire valley, and they're doing uh, incredible work at their project. We're we're a big block right in their claim group. We're going to look to test that. We're going to stick some holes into it. It looks really interesting. And they're having some success immediately within their claim block, which we're in the side of it, just to the west of us. Right. Well, exciting. Uh, lots to look forward to then. Um, how much? Um, how well funded are you to carry out what you want to do yeah, this year? Yeah, absolutely. So May 26, we just completed an oversubscribed financing of about $1.2 million. Since then, that was done at $0.14. Cents. We've reached a high of $0.48 um, cents yesterday. Um, but we're down to reporting around $0.38 cents to 40 now. And the good thing is we have 9 million warrants, all at $0.20, cents, basically 100% in the money, which gives us about another 1.8 as those warrants come through. Mm-hmm. So we have money in the till. We have uh, warrants that are 100% of the money, and we'll be looking to see what we're going to be needing for capital requirements on these three projects. Plus, we have other projects we're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's going to be busy, which we're excited. We love we live for these moments in the industry when all the stars align. If you guys in the industry are calling it Christmas in July, it's Christmas for the shareholders. They're being rewarded. It's a beautiful time to be a junior. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the money early went into the seniors. They floated down to the mid-tier group, and they're realizing that all of us juniors, if you got the right team with the right structure and the right projects, and you're going to be active with Newsflow. The money's flowing into us because this is it. This, we've been waiting for this for our lifetime. Oh, and for sure. In the industry, everyone in my family's been doing this for 150 years. Yeah. It's, it's, we're, we're, we're charged, so we're excited. Okay. Well, Peter, I, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know you said you got started in 1980. It's certainly my newsletter. I started in 1981. It's right after the bull market of the 70s. And I think we're on to something much bigger than that is my sense. I don't know what your thoughts are, but it certainly isn't, as you say, an exciting time to be in this industry, which is uh, why I'm so glad that you're here to tell us about your exciting stories. Certainly, we'll be looking forward to talking to you again, Peter, and keeping up with all that you're doing, and we'll pass on the news to our listeners uh, as you have some exciting news that comes out. So thank you so much for being with us. We do have to go to break now, folks, but uh, don't go away, and uh, we'll be talking to Peter again sometime in the near future. Thanks, Peter, for being with us. Absolutely, Jay. Thanks a lot, and have a really good day. I will do so. Okay, folks, well, we're going to go to break, but Alistair McLeod will be with us to talk about inflation, why this time it's different. Alistair, we're going to hear what he has to say, so you won't want to miss that. I'll be right back.
Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer flagship Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Alistair McLeod with me once again. And I really feel fortunate to have Alistair with us these days because he is very much sought after for his understanding of these markets, which appear very strange to most people. From Alistair's rock-solid understanding of real-life economics built upon the rock-solid foundation of Austrian economic theory, uh, he is most helpful in making some sense out of what appears to otherwise be chaotic, nonsensical happenings in the markets. It just don't seem to make any sense uh, based on based on solid economic data and what seems to be happening. The disconnect between the equity markets, for example, uh, and the business environment doesn't make any sense at all until you start to understand what really is driving the markets, and that's where Alistair is really very helpful to us. I would suggest strongly that you avail yourself to uh, Alistair's weekly insights. Uh, his, uh, his essays that he writes uh, comes out every Thursday. Go to goldmoney.com. Um, it's uh, the Research Gold Money Insights page, and it's just excellent. Uh, and so I want to thank Alistair. Thank you so much, Alistair, for joining us again. I know it's late in your day over there, and you've had some technical issues Boy, I'll tell you, technology is great when it works, but when it doesn't, it can be the, one of the most frustrating things in our lives. And uh, I really, really thank you for for being with us today because I know it's been a. Uh, it's it's in general, this is these have been trying times. And then when you have well, other things that poke you in the eye, it doesn't make life any easier. So thank you so much for being with us. No, well, thank you very much for asking me. It's uh, it's very much my pleasure, Jay. Well, thank you. I I I I I, I, wa- I want to believe that, but somehow I think. You are so much sought after that I have to think that if, if I were you, I would be getting annoyed that so many people want to take up so much of my time, but I, but I thank you. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, you've written an article on July 18th uh, that appeared at the Mises Institute that I picked up on, and I normally read everything you write uh, that's at Gold Money, but this one, inflation this time is different. Um, before we get into the reasons why this time is different, could you maybe just uh, quickly review the credit cycle uh, and where we are in it at this time. I know you've gone over it many times in the past, but the credit cycle as opposed to the business cycle. Most people refer to this as a business cycle. You point out this is a credit. What we're talking about now, what the real driver is, 
is credit. It's credit that drives the business cycle, not the other way around. It should be the other way around. But anyway, could you just go over that uh, with our listeners and talk to us about the cycle, where we are in it now, where we are in that right now? Yes, of course. I mean, basically, the credit cycle is something that started um, when banks uh, began to issue credit, credit which was not backed by gold, going back into the old days. And uh, the effect of that was that uh, the credit obviously stimulated activity because um, it goes into the economy, masquerading as, in those days, gold-backed money. It wasn't Mm gold-backed. It was credit. And... uh, um, consequently, by stimulating the economy, the bankers got more uh, confident about um, how things were progressing, so they made more credit available. And uh, the process sort of built up until they had uh, typically something like 10 to 12 times their equity out on loan uh, to business customers. And um, then there comes a point where uh, the expansion of credit meets um, an obstacle. And that is the limitation of the amount of um, other forms of capital available. And by that, I mean labor, um, commodities, um, uh, the machinery, if you like, to make things. Um, Suddenly you find that there's a queue uh, um, uh, to uh, acquire this machinery. And consequently, uh, you get blockages, you get um, uh, uh, things, and suddenly you've got problems in the economy. Um, and prices start rising. Now, at that point, obviously, interest rates have to be um, increased um, uh, in order to keep some sort of balance in the situation. But bankers then begin to worry about um, the amount of risk that they've actually got on board. And when you've expanded your, um, uh, your, your, your balance sheet to, say, 10 or 12 times your equity, that's mm-hmm. lovely while things are going well. But when you begin to worry that perhaps they're not going to go quite so well and there's a bit of risk coming in. Then what happens is you start trying to contract your balance sheet to control that risk. And inevitably, um, it's not just you. Um, you know, you've got other bankers who are thinking in exactly the same way and they're probably watch, watching what you're doing and you're watching what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the whole of the banking community starts um, getting worried about risk rather than being greedy for, um, uh, for profits. And at that stage, you get, uh, if you like, a crash in the availability of bank credit. Now, this is something that goes on despite the attempts of central banks to try and um, inject um, money into the economy, um, you know, when, when uh, the, the, the commercial banks seem to be stepping back or getting cautious. The result is that uh, sometimes um, the effect of uh, the contraction of bank credit is covered by central bank actions. You find that you go into a recession, and it's not too serious, um, and somehow you get out of it. But uh, sometimes it's not quite so good. And if you look back to 1929, that was the classic. In 1929, that was the end of, an ex- uh, of, of a period of massive credit expansion, which gave you the roaring 20s. And at that time, 1929, they increased tariffs. There was the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which increased tariffs, American tariffs, um, on all imported goods by around about 20%. And it was the combination of those two things, the sudden contraction of bank credit, which affected uh, um, stock prices, because a lot of the, the bank credit 
had financed purchases of stocks. And uh, the um, uh, Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, coinciding at that time, led to the Dow Jones falling from September 1929 to, um, uh, it was sort of July 1932, a total Mm -hmm. of 89%. Now, in terms of the credit cycle, we are at that point, really very close to the top. We've seen an initial move down, uh, some sort of recovery in stocks. Um, Now, that could go a bit further. It might not go a bit further. It is very dangerous. There is money Mm -hmm. being produced which is actually going into the financial assets rather than into the underlying economy. Now, having said that, um, when um, that begins to fail, then you've got the second leg down, the one which took... um, the Dow in 1930, around about, I think, May 1930, down to that low in 1932. We've still got that ahead of us on the analysis of the bank credit cycle. So it's very important to understand it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I might just add that our uh, Michael Oliver, who's on our show, from a technical point of view, sees, much, sees very much the same thing. Uh, he believes that the next, and he's made the comparison with the 1932 uh, decline uh, from 1929 to the 1930s. Everybody thought we were off to the races and things looked good again to most people. Uh, bounce back off the lows just as we had a bounce back off our uh, March lows and people are singing songs and, and, and you turn on uh, NSNBC or any of these uh, these channels and they're all talking about how great things are again. Um, and they're cheer- trying to cheerlead the economy on. But Alistair, you know, back in the in at that time, we were on a gold standard, and yet we still had these problems. Um, they, of course, Keynes and, and the liberals, are, they, they, they blame the gold standard for the problems. Why are they wrong? Well, that is not, I mean, it, it, you're right, they do blame the gold standard. Uh, the problem with the gold standard was it was a straitjacket. It didn't really allow the central bank, the Fed, um, to expand the amount of money in, in uh, circulation as much as it needed to, because it had to work on a rule-based gold standard. Mm-hmm. Now, the people who um, see um, uh, gold, if you like, as, as, uh, as an impediment are basically inflationists. This is mm-hmm. the Keynesian idea that you need to stimulate the economy by printing money. And obviously, the gold standard prevents that. There will be differences this time in terms of the price effect of, um, let's say, an, uh, a slump, a new slump, which is a natural consequence, if you like, of a bank credit crisis. Now, when it happens this time, you've got fiat currencies, and fiat currencies will lose purchasing power. They're designed to do that in these circumstances because the Keynesians believe that it will stimulate the economy. But the fact of the matter is that it's got very little to do with it. If they actually stood back in 1930 um, and uh, just let the economy sort itself out, that would have uh, um, uh, resolved itself in probably no more than 18 months to two years. And that Mm -hmm. indeed was the experience of the previous slump, which was back in 1921. 21-22, lasted 18 months, and that Mm -hmm. was it. But when government gets in the way, it stops the process, if you like, of uh, capital reallocation from businesses which um, have grown fat on bank credit, um, have lost, if you like, their, their way in terms of generating profit without that credit. In the absence of that credit, those companies should go bust. 
new technology, new management, new entrepreneurial uh, um, uh, expertise uh, can redeploy that capital to mm-hmm. more effect. And that is, if you like, the sort of the, the new effect. Um, I should have called it uh, creative destruction. Sure. Uh, so, but that is something that, you know, if you don't interfere with the economy, if you just have sound money, you find that evolution in business is going on all the time. Mm-hmm. And that is a good thing. That is called economic progress. The problem with interfering with economic progress is you get no progress, and then the whole thing starts going wrong. And that was really the problem of the 1930s, not the gold standard. Okay, you mentioned in, your, uh, in that article that the, the reason it's different this time, you compared it with 2008, the financial crisis. You noted there that that financial crisis, that it was in fact a financial crisis. It started in the financial realm. This time it's starting in the real economy. Explain to us why that's a big difference between now well, and 2008. Yeah, it is a huge difference. I mean, if um, the problem starts um, or it is broadly confined to the financial sector, then you find that it's banks, you find that, um, you know, investment managers, you find that, uh, you know, everybody who's invested in these things suddenly starts losing a lot of money. Now, that does have an impact on the underlying economy, but the impact is really not that great. If the problem starts in the underlying economy, you know, the real economy, Main Street as opposed to Wall Street, then this is a far, far greater problem to deal with. And um, we, this is what we've seen with COVID-19. I mean, this is, if you like, very much um, a test case for us. Um, it shows that, uh, you know, when you close businesses, um, people go unemployed. This is just massive, absolutely massive. And uh, it's going to take some time for businesses to recover from this. Obviously, governments and investment managers hope that it's a V-shaped recovery. In other words, as soon as lockdown really ends and we've dealt with it, then we go back to normal. But that's not going to happen at all because the whole thing has destroyed so many businesses. And it's not just the large businesses. It's the medium and small businesses which make up up to 80% of any economy, including the American economy. It's all those unsung heroes who produce things that we want, the goods and services. Um, the, the, the people, um, you know, sort of out of the cities who, um, you know, are builders, decorators, um, you know, sort of restaurant, restaurant, uh, own restaurants, all the rest, of, all these small businesses, they're the ones who are really suffering. And that is, um, that has enormous consequences. It really does. Yeah, indeed. And I'm just looking at an article here on Zero Hedge. It says, like nothing we've seen, imminent eviction wave is coming to these states in August, predicting upwards to 2.3 million evictions. I think these are home evictions. We're seeing a massive number of, of course, uh, America had, America and Canada too, had huge amounts of retail space. You know, the, the retail sector was in trouble before COVID, and now it's just being absolutely devastated. So, I can't imagine that there's not going to be a huge cry from the bankers for their uh, for their daddy at the Fed to bail them out too. And then you have this situation with the retail, with people, with masses of people unemployed, not able to pay their rents. Alistair, it's it's very frightening. It certainly is, and um, of course the banks, if you like, are stuck in the middle of this. Um, going back to what we were talking about about the credit cycle. 
they are desperately worried about all their commitments out to people who are going bust. So what are they doing? They're trying desperately to cut those commitments at the same time as the Fed is saying, oh, no, for goodness sake, don't cut the commitments. Lend more money. Keep the thing going and it'll be a V-shaped recovery and we'll all be all right at the end of the day. But the bankers don't believe it. And uh, who can blame them? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, the bankers have a fiduciary responsibility, or at least at once they did. I don't know if they take that seriously anymore because they know the Fed will always be there to bail them out. I know as a credit analyst many decades ago uh, working for banks in New York City, I thought I was doing something good. I was helping to preserve the capital, I felt, by doing a conscientious job and evaluating whether or not the, uh, the borrower could pay us back. But that seems to be something they don't worry about too much anymore. Federal Reserve can just print money. Um, I want to ask you, really, uh, this. I want you to help us understand a little bit about Keynesian's, uh, the Gibson para- Gibson's paradox, which Keynes was a paradox to Keynes, I guess. But uh, as I understand it, Alistair, Keynes believed that, I mean, he, w- he was perplexed by the idea that uh, the bond rates and inflation were going up together. I guess, I guess what, if I understand this right, Keynes thought that... It, we should, with lower interest rates, we should get more business activity and hence higher prices. Do I have that right? Now, basically, what he, what he was doing is he was, um, because he couldn't work out Gibson's paradox, he ignored yeah. it. And mm-hmm. uh, really, if you ignore um, Gibson's paradox, then basically uh, you can believe that um, lowering interest rates will lead to an economic recovery because um, people will go out and borrow. And mm-hmm. so he was very much an inflationist who believed in the lowest interest rates possible. He also had a problem insofar as uh, presumably a lot of his friends, um, the idle rich, as it were, uh, had uh, trusts which um, had capital, which um, earned income in form of interest. And mm-hmm. uh, it allowed, um, you know, the sort of, if you like, the wealthy, the Belmond of the day to... Um, live a very nice life without actually having to get their hands dirty. And yeah. uh, I think this thing was, was something that Keynes really reacted against. So he didn't understand capitalism, if you like, from the point of view that savers provide, by deferring their, um, their spending, they actually provide the capital for businesses. And the process which... Um, Gibson's paradox really showed is that it wasn't so much savers deciding to divert um, money from their current spending to lend to businesses. What happens is that businesses have to bid up for the money. So Mm -hmm. um, from the point of view of a business, uh, you know, it is an expense, if you like, which is an expensive business. The interest rate that they pay on money is an expensive business. But um, the one thing they do know is what price they can expect to sell Mm -hmm. their product at. I mean, it is a fundamental function of an entrepreneur to uh, assess that. And uh, as far as the saver is concerned, what you've got to overcome is the problem that the saver, if you like, will value money on the basis of comparison, actually Mm -hmm. having it today as opposed to having it at a date in the future. This is called time preference. Sure. So the two things are rather different. Business looks at it as an expense, which it uses in its business calculation uh, when it is evaluating a project to invest in. But ordinary individual savers 
regard it as a time preference problem. In other words, they're being asked to part with their money and only get it back at a later date. Now, right. there's got to be a reward for that, as you may understand. And no amount of fiddling around by a central bank is actually going to change that fact. Right. Well, of course, uh, this is a religion of the day and has been since Keynes and since Nixon said we're all Keynesians now. This is the economic religion of our time. Uh, and it smacks, It's you know, talk about uh, science, talk about evidence. Uh, it's the opposite, isn't it, Alistair? If you look at the more money they've shoveled in, the less robust our economic cycles have been, uh, our credit cycles have been. And, and so the, the evidence runs contrary to that, does it not? What we're seeing Absolutely. in the last I several mean, decades. I, the, best, the best example of this is um, to look at what Japan and um, uh, the Eurozone have done with interest rates. They've made them negative. Has that uh, sparked an enormous revival in their economies? Certainly not. Not at all. No, no. so you no. can see that the idea that you can actually manage an, eco an economy by uh, manipulating the interest rate is disproved. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I would just say to people that are really interested, uh, Alistair's article, the one I just referred to on, uh, that, that talks about Gibson's paradox, is posted at goldmoney.com. Well, Alistair, with just a couple of minutes left here yet, I have to ask you, what do you make of this? We have seen now, I believe, a new high in gold. I know I chart the monthly average from the London PM fix. I do that every every day, and I know that our average for July is most certainly the highest ever, higher than back in 2011. <laughs> Uh, and so it looks like we're on to something. James Turk called it a the leading edge of a tsunami now. Uh, and I'm seeing here, you know, this all these millions of people that are going to be thrown out in the streets, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just hard to see how that's not going to be the case from my perspective. What what are your well, thoughts? Uh, um, in, in the very short term, we have a, a crisis in uh, the uh, gold paper markets. Um, it started off with the crisis on COMEX, um, and you saw the COMEX went to a, you know, the COMEX gold contract went to an enormous premium over over London spot. Yes. Now what's happening is something um, very interesting, and that is that um, London spot is trading at a premium to COMEX, and huh. this tells me that there is a shortage. I mean, I, we knew knew there was a shortage of bullion in London, um, given that. It is used so extensively. I mean, it just turns over at a hell of a rate. Um, but now that shortage is really beginning to bite, and that is why uh, you're finding that the London spot price is going up above COMEX. Um, hmm. And I, so I think we're going to enter a second phase of the crisis, which is going to drive um, uh, precious metal prices, gold and silver, uh, significantly higher. Um, the problem with it is that this is creating a crisis in the bullion bank fraternity. I mean, already on COMEX, they're adrift um, by something like, I was calculating it the other day, but I think it'd be in the region of 38 to $40 billion spread between 27, 28 bullion banks. That is an mm. enormous amount of money, and it is not spread evenly. So we're okay. getting into a situation where bullion banks could well become insolvent, or those decks, desks could undermine the stability of the banks that actually own them, because all and the, bullion it, banks basically it, are part and, of bigger banks. And the entire banking system. Alistair, we're going to have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. Thank you so much. That's a topic for another day. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always great to have you. Folks, next week we got Michael Oliver who is back with us. 
Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources and Dan Oliver will talk to us about a slingshot rise in the price of gold. Um, you won't want to miss next week's show. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Benchmark Metals is a gold-silver exploration company that is embarking on its largest program to date on the Lawyers Project with up to 50,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling planned in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success.